John, this Halloween party sucks. <sighs> Shut up. All right, look, there's gonna be guests here soon, okay? Come on, I went all out. You know, no, you, you didn't. You there's got no the decoration. There's nothing scary going on here. Yes, I it's did. I put all the decorations in the punch. Therefore, it was festive, okay? <laughs> I put grapes in there to be the witch's eyes, and I put spaghetti in there to be the witch's hair. <laughs> but now it's all just brown. It's like uh, the Easter egg. <laughs> the posse Easter egg. You just throw all the tablets in, and then it becomes brown. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm sure someone will show up soon, okay? No, this isn't festive scary. John, I'm, feel I'm feeling a strong sense of ennui. Oh. And I, it's exemplified here in this, uh, the one decoration you do have, a headstone um, with the logo for our beloved, beloved streaming service, Filmstruck, Ugh. 2016 to 2018. Ugh. So people might have noticed we haven't been doing a lot of hollow, uh, horror Halloween movies this month because it's just the crippling ennui we feel at all times now in 2018 is too yeah. much. I, we just can't afford to be scared. Exactly. And, 2018, you're fired. <laughs> and to be greeted with this this horrible news that Filmstruck is shutting down is just... Yeah. Uh, For those who have, you haven't heard, this, this is coming a week late because of our recording schedule. But yes, um, sadly, with the merger, or sorry, merger, the acquisition of AT&T of Time Warner... Mm -hmm. um, they will be shutting down Filmstruck and all their other niche uh, on-demand services and kind of folding it into one big Time Warner library. Yeah. Um, so while it's sad to see the this particular streaming service go, the one dedicated to exclusively classic movies, mm -hmm. uh, eventually I, I am, I'm bolstered by the fact that eventually these films, at least the good ones, will reappear. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Because, uh, granted, there was a lot of hand-wringing on, on uh, film Twitter about, like, oh, no, like, another another dreaded service gone. Oh, woe, woe to us. But, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people will still be able to find arsenic and old lace. And, um, yeah. I mean, that was the other kind of weird thing is that there was a lot of just really esoteric stuff, like Felix the Cat cartoons on Filmstruck as well. And to really get the most out of it, the Criterion Collection, you needed to pay extra for that. Exactly. And the Criterion Collection will be will attach itself to some other service. It was on Hulu previous to this, so Yeah, they'll find a home new home for that. And I'm I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to that, but it just sucks that, you know, there was not there's no longer just one space for it. Now I have to go you probably have to start going piecemeal again, which is always yes. been the biggest struggle for this podcast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um while you do have a month, I thought I thought it'd be apropos if we could recommend uh, some movies that folks uh, can see on Filmstruck while it's while it's still with us for another thirty days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to strongly recommend a Louis Malle film called Au, Re Au Revoir Les Enfants, um, mm -hmm. or Goodbye Children, as, <laughs> if you want to sound less pretentious. <laughs> yep. But it's a, it's a really good kind of World War II drama. Some people may consider it Oscar bait these days, but it's, uh, it's, very, it's very good, called from his personal experiences, so... Yeah, and I like. I would like to recommend. You know, I've I've spotlighted it before, but they have the Kenneth Branagh version of Hamlet, which I highly recommend. And again, mm -hmm. you'll get your money's worth because it's three hours long. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe you wanna maybe you wanna kind of use as much time as you have on shorter films. They also have this is Spinal Tap on there. So please go oh, enjoy yeah. that film if you haven't gotten a chance to see that. So yeah, as well as all the movies we've profiled on this uh, podcast, Bicycle Thieves. Yes, but a lot Feast. of them. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them have come from film strokes. Yeah. So, so granted, we just have. We're just angry that we have one less resource. So. <laughs> if you thought the podcast was bad now, oh boy. <laughs> now we're going to have no good films. 
whatever. John, I listen. We're we're not feeling uh, we're not feeling a, a fun fun form of of uh, of terror terror. Instead, we're feeling this existential dread. Of um, I'm gonna make some pop. Oh, I got butter all over me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look! Someone showed up. It's a seven foot tall man brandishing a knife and a mask. <laughs> hey, buddy, how you doing? Yeah. Oh, not done. talking much. Okay, well, enjoy the party. <laughs> yeah, let's say, hey, we're bummed too. Okay. <laughs> I'll go be easily distracted over here. <laughs> I'm going to go have sex. Someone. I'm going to go hey, sex someone up. Now it's a party. <laughs> Hold on, let me smoke this dupe real quick first. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're no angel. Terrible. Awful. <laughs> was I supposed to do something else tonight? Oh, yeah, I think I was supposed to babysit someone. Oh, well. Uh, I t- <laughs> I'm gonna short Now that's uh, that's where this movie really that's where it gets really unrealistic. Nobody would ask us to babysit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as if it wasn't evident enough, we decided to watch our first b- true slasher flick for this podcast. This week we caught up on the on its 40th anniversary, the 1978 classic Halloween. <laughs> Listening to this on November first. Whatever. Go, way to go scheduling us. <laughs> it comes out on the day of Halloween. Just no one will listen to it on the Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Again, the John have already moved past it. You're right. It's Christmas. Well, it's Christmas we... time now. We should have done a Christmas movie. Yeah. To preempt it. <laughs> exactly. Nothing but Christmas movies for the next eight weeks. <laughs> well, we could have done like you know. There's a lot of like Halloween Christmas crossover hits like Gremlins and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could have done one of those. Yeah. Hedge our bets. Oh well. Yes, I will push back on your assertion that this is our first slasher film, because some people consider Psycho to be the first ever slasher film. I and, suppose. And there are a lot of nods in the original Halloween to Psycho. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice a single one. <laughs> and that's because John Carpenter is such a big Hitchcock fan. Mm-hmm. And John, who wouldn't be? Um, so why don't you speak to just the genesis of, of Halloween and why it's become such a, other than the title, why it's become, <laughs> some, become such a, a, a appointment viewing every every October? Well, um, first of all, let's just speak to this. I'll just speak to my personal opinion. I think it's a pretty effective film. Um, I think it's actually quite scary. And obviously it gets the job done. It elicits those scares. But also I think part of the reason why it works and why Michael Myers even though he wasn't intentionally meant to turn into this gigantic mascot. I think he is a man of all seasons. He can kind of, he, he fits the bill for so many slashers who would yet to come. You know, he's he's shown to be able to, you know, premeditate murder. He's a stalker. He can kind of plan, but also he's just a savage beast who needs to kill. He's driven to this yeah. instinct for no greater reason. And then also, like Jason, he's a zombie. He just keeps coming back. <laughs> you can't stop him. 
<laughs> yeah, I this upon this is the first time I've ever seen Halloween, and I was struck by its simplicity. And you're right, all the great qualities of Mike Myers that makes him such an effective killer. It's the same thing that we saw in Alien. It's the same thing that we see in Jaws, um, mm-hmm. the Terminator as well. Just kind of like this mindless killing machine that makes just the the thrills so simple yet effective. Um, exactly, and you don't need to think about it. Like, don't mm-hmm. make me think. <laughs> yeah. And it starts from, I think, my favorite scene is the four-minute opening. A, a long take, as it were. Ooh. <laughs> yes, through the eyes of the killer. Ooh. Yeah. Voyeurism. Have uh. you ever seen this in a movie before? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I, I haven't. I certainly haven't brought it up every at every opportunity I could. <laughs> yes, the opening scene is a long take through the eyes of Michael Myers as he commits his first kill. Yes, a young Michael Myers. And... Basically, we see what what we learn is his sister kind of canoodling. Um, mm-hmm. So while well, we get two themes here, uh, one intentional, one I think unintentional. <laughs> yes. <laughs> one is is voyeurism and putting us in the eyes of this uh, deadly force, in the in this case Michael Myers. The other intentional one is that he sees his sister like not only you know shooing him away in the way that older siblings would, mm-hmm. but also she's she's being flirtatious. Exactly. She's being, she's being a bit uh, horny. <laughs> Well, there's, there's which, as we learned, the, the, Michael Myers is not a fan of. <laughs> well, there's there's two possible reasoning behind Michael Myers' killings, mm-hmm. which is again stems back from this night. His uh, sister was put in responsibility of him, which she is clearly shirking, and instead of doing that, she has decided to do premarital sex with her boyfriend. Oh, <laughs> John, has she not read Leviticus? <laughs> <laughs> And, like, obviously a lot of people have read into this, and again, like, a lot of slasher movies going forward is that they're kind of morality plays for teens. And especially when it comes to premarital sex, because a lot of it is, you know, teens getting killed in the midst of coitus, shall we say, or (laughs) post-coitus. And yeah. obviously, this also this movie also invented the trope of the final girl, who always Mm -hmm. tends to be the most virginal girl of the group. Yeah, and so... This basically this spawned a lot of imitators, not including the seven other Halloween movies that we've that we've seen. <laughs> um, but what John Carpenter has explained, and it, and his producing partner Deborah Hill, what they've explained is that no, they weren't really reaching for this, you know, morality play of um, t- like you know, basically warning teens not to be flirtatious in their younger years. Guys, I have bad news. John Carpenter does not do big themes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Any bigger themes you get from his movies are clearly unintended. <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah, unconsciously, maybe maybe he's speaking to something. But what he said was, as we were crafting the story, which they got from a producer, a producer basically came to them. It's not like they had this grand vision for a Halloween movie. No. A producer said, hey, make a movie on the babysitter killer or something. <laughs> and well, th- thankfully, they transformed it into this, legend- into this legendary slasher flick. Um, but basically, they explained like what they needed pragmatically was a s- scenes for which teens to get distracted and exactly. appear vulnerable to the killer. And because they weren't smartphones at this time, um, <laughs> you can't say, like, oh, you can't speak to the evils of technology. Instead, unintentionally, it wound up being, you know, the evils of, you know, sex before marriage. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, but I think, you know, again, that's people reading too much into it the whole idea and the reason why teens make such good slasher fodder is that they are inherently selfish and easily distracted um, you can make <laughs> well, also yeah vulnerable in the way that the the virginal girl seems exactly and you yeah. like again the same point was made during the original friday the 13th the whole idea of those kids they're getting their comeuppance for shirking their responsibilities they were supposed yeah. to take care of jason and they clearly failed and again yeah. sex was a big part of that so mm-hmm. 
yeah, so I, you know, looking back on it with those fresh eyes, I definitely did not see a premarital sex, you know, you deserve to get killed kind of message <laughs> that a lot of people pulled out of it. And again, because again, that's so much part of the, sadly in the secular world now, part of the teen experience. So it just seems like an extension of that, not necessarily like an intentional consequence of that. It's, yeah. it's co- correlation, not causation. Okay. <laughs> The other great aspect of this of this opening sequence is that they employ the use of a brand new technology, Panaglide. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, Panaglide was Panavision's camera's uh, version of the Steadicam, which started to get some use in the mid-1970s and then would go on to be greatly used in a, in a horror movie, in another classic horror movie two years later, The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was its own brand, Steadicam. This is Panaglide. And that's what I find fascinating is that they, they both these technologies got their start on small independent movies because Halloween was a was a, again not expected to do very well. It was kind of this cheese. It was supposed to be this cheesy B movie. It was made for only three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and same with Rocky too. I mean, Rocky yeah. Rocky wasn't exactly a huge studio. Obviously, it became a huge hit, but it started as a kind of small independent film. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of stunned by, you see this kind of brand new technology employed on smaller films, whereas today. In movies like Star Wars and um, and uh, the the Marvel movies, um, they're trying out new technology like de aging and um, <laughs> literally like crap, putting another uh, actor's face, uh, deceased actor's face on a on a on a new body. So it's it, I I thought it was also funny that that contrast. In addition to it being like technically interesting, it, there's also a lot going on thematically in this opening scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason why is because obviously they have big name actors. They need to protect the identity of or hold yeah. on to the copyright to their image, I suppose. <laughs> that's that's true, too. Um, so what... Well, well speaking of big name stars, <laughs> we, we follow this scene with our introduction to Donald Pleasance. <laughs> yes, Donald Pleasance, who mm-hmm. sucks at his job. <laughs> I do. He doesn't suck at his job. The the uh, insane asylum that he's visiting is bad at their job because Michael Myers. They're in the middle of the breakout. The the scene starts in medias res. <laughs> yes. So uh, Donald Pleasance is playing Sam Loomis. Let's do a little ding every time there's a psycho reference. Um, so he's playing Sam Loomis, who uh, no, he he his his whole job in this movie is to be bad at his job. He's terrible <laughs> because he he's not bad know. at his job. He's his his role in the movie is to be the voice of the, the basically intone the threat of Michael Myers. Yes, the exposition, because yeah. he knows he's been studying Michael Myers now for 20 years, and he's seen the evil behind the eyes. And But doesn't that also make him bad at his job? Shouldn't oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go- he would be disbarred like, <laughs> immediately when he says, like, this person should be locked away forever. There's no redeeming quality to him. He's not a human anymore. In my professional opinion, my client is evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's breaking all sorts of HIPAA violations. He's- I met him 15 years ago. I-, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, 
no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. His license, yes, but again, it was late seventies. They didn't know what they were doing. They were yeah. still, they were probably still treating him with leeches at this point. <laughs> but again, like, so he's going to go pick up Michael Myers, and he breaks mm-hmm. out on Halloween night. Why are they transporting him on Halloween night? I don't know. And they keep doing it because people as are well. busy with it. Yeah, it's a, it's barely a holiday. It's fine. <laughs> it's when it was convenient on the. Th- yes, things go less coincidentally on the night he committed that that heinous murder of his sister. <laughs> Well, I guess it adds to the whole like fable quality of it, like the campfire story, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, mise en scène about it. <laughs> but I, I want to commend Mr. Pleasance's performance as Doctor Loomis. <laughs> mm, okay, <laughs> because it, yeah, because he is. <laughs> well, because they also wanted Christopher Lee and um, Peter Cushing for this role. Mm-hmm. We're talking very stern, very serious Shakespearean actors. So he do, really does intone the severity of like what he's saying when he's talking to the bumbling cop or the poor little nurse who looks like she's in her own um, Halloween costume on that night. <laughs> she's got this like red cape on. <laughs> she looks like a nurse out of like the 1950s. <laughs> or out of the night nurses of Jersey. <laughs> like, ooh, Dr. Loomis. <laughs> so yeah, Michael Myers escapes. He, uh, mm-hmm attacks the car and they both get out and while they're both distracted he gets in the car and drives away which is one of the biggest plot holes imaginable <laughs> I... they've they've tried their hardest to kind of like fudge over it i think in subsequent sequels and like novelizations but it just makes no sense that someone who's been locked up since they were six years old <laughs> would know how to drive a car <laughs> i listen all right you're speaking to a fable quality there are things that i will accept i will okay. suspend my disbelief if the movie is absorbed and at this rate um the atmosphere has drawn me in that first that first scene is is exceptional. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a dark and stormy night when they're on their way to this uh, mental facility. So, <laughs> at this point, I I I completely glossed over that. Um, okay, it is a little ridiculous. He's like, oh, clearly there's a break in. I'm gonna run to the phone, and the poor nurse gets attacked and thrown from the car, and then Michael, and that's when Donald, Fletch, like from there, maybe um, if if John Carpenter had a little more coverage or could get more shots in or plan out that sequence better, maybe. But mm-hmm. again, I'm still with the story at this point. Okay. No. Yeah. I mean, again, the rest of the movie is quite effective, but I never bought into the Doctor Loomis character. I never liked him, okay. <laughs> especially because <laughs> obviously his his first instincts go back to the town of Hatfield. Is it? Uh, Haddonville. Haddon Haddonfield. Haddon. Oh, excuse yeah. me. His first instinct. The, the fictional back. town in Illinois. Yeah, his first instinct is go back to Haddonfield. And what does he do for the rest of the movie? He waits at the house, the scene of the murder. Because <laughs> he knows that Michael Myers is going to come back there. And he does. 
But mm-hmm. Dr. Loomis misses him. Because, again, Dr. Loomis is terrible at his job. <laughs> <laughs> and then, to be fair, the sheriff that he falls in with um, isn't much better. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Who is the... Come on, John. We haven't even gotten to the three main characters here. <laughs> oh, yes, I guess that's true. The, the titular... Who would be the titular babys- the babysitters if this movie were still called The Babysitter Killer? <laughs> or The um, Babysitter Murders. We're introduced to... it Introduced to... Yep. That's apropos. <laughs> a young Jamie, a young Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes, as a uh, daughter, daughter. Yeah, that, put another ding there. Daughter of uh, Vivi, uh, Janet Lee. Ah, yeah. And her only crime is she drops off the key for her dad, who's the real estate agent trying to sell the old Myers house. Yes. <laughs> and Michael Myers happens to Michael Myers happens to be there. He sees her, and then all of a sudden decides she is going to be my next victim. <laughs> and once you know it, she is also a babysitter who I have experience with killing. <laughs> well, so yeah, if we want to get into, I guess we don't necessarily have to get into Michael Myers' uh, in, uh, motivation because he is designed to be basically an emotionless killing machine. Mm-hmm. However, it's implied that he's trying to replicate the murder of his dearly departed saint, saintly sister earlier. <laughs> Maybe not saintly, no, but... Right, come on, she had premarital sex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if anything, it's a victimless crime. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> But earlier we see Dr. Loomis finds that he has taken uh, his sister's headstone. Mm-hmm. So if if we can explain his infatuation with uh, uh, Jennifer... I was about to say Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis's character, it would be maybe he reminds her of a sister. Exactly. Cer- certainly more than the other, than her two best friends, uh, Linda and Annie, because um, both, they both appear to be in their 30s. <laughs> I honestly thought Jamie Lee Curtis was the oldest looking one, but apparently she was the youngest looking one. Oh yeah, she was only Curtis, nineteen. At yeah, the time but Jamie Lee Curtis has a very mature face. She's a she's a strong yeah. woman. So yeah, she was also born a man. Did I want to know no, that? I was going to avoid that. <laughs> Sorry, I just left it. And I'm clearly being facetious. No, she was not born a man. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> I yeah. In any event, <laughs> we're introduced to these three characters. We see how uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, how saintly her character is, because she is very um, doting on on the uh, boy that she's going to babysit that night. Yeah, I wouldn't describe her as saintly. I would just say responsible. Like again, okay, the virtue of this movie is responsibility. Like yes. as a babysitter, you have a responsibility to be a caretaker, and I think that's where a lot of the horror also comes in is the fact that yes, there is a stalker that is trying to kill her, but then also there's two kids who are also could potentially be victims as well, and she has to mm-hmm. be responsible for them too. And I kind of wish that the story kind of made the f- made them kind of more of the story because again, they just kind of like hide and run off as you know as soon as Michael Myers shows up. So, um, but again, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. It's a it's a very slow boil this movie, but I think it I think it ramps up nicely. Yeah, th- this part of the movie it drags a little. Um, I think the only compelling parts is Doctor Loomis's investigation. Even though you didn't like him, I did like the scene where he's on the phone, like explaining, like, yeah, we have to find Michael Myers. He's a killer. Like, and fine. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that yes, he's he's called basically because he stumbled on the scene of Michael Myers's first official kill since being locked up in this facility. Mm-hmm. Um, he's basically taken a, a roadside trucker, taken his suit, and and gotten a mask. Or that that comes later, but that's what's more compelling is uh, Doctor Loomis's uh, determination to get it. But from there, yes, it is kind of a slow boil, and we have to rely on these somewhat creepy shots, like uh, him behind the hedge, the mm-hmm. very famous one. Another one on Halloween night where a kid runs into him but thinks he's just a guy. In a mask and you know exactly. is therefore harmless there's also that very famous shot of him like hiding in the laundry 
the laundry that's drying outside and you look down the window and she sees him for a split second and then she looks away yes. and then he's gone again. Yeah, uh, so it has to rely on that. Yeah, the, the, if, if we are going to boil this down to just being a, a slasher film, the mm. first kill is a, is a very slow boil. Too slow of a boil, <laughs> if you ask me. Well, because it, I, 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 I kind of push back against that a little bit because, again, I do think it's kind of like wrapping up, ramping up the tension because he could really strike at any moment. And there's a moment... It, it almost becomes farcical. She gets, like, stuck in the laundry room. And she <laughs> tries to crawl out the window, and she's, like, you know, she's stuck halfway through the window, and her panties are exposed, and it's like, yeah. oh, this is when she's he's going to get her. Nope, the kid comes and rescues her. <laughs> exactly. And I, this is when I was annoyed. This is when I was losing my patience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do... I, here's the thing. I respect it as a, as a form of restraint. Because nowadays, you know, mm. movies would be like, well, you got to have a kill every 10 minutes or else the audience is going to get bored. And then you got to save <laughs> Exactly. <the cat>. <laughs> and <laughs> then you got to make your bored. serial killer likable, you know? <laughs> or else no one's going to connect with him. <laughs> yeah. So we do still kill a dog mm-hmm. uh, in the midst of this scene, a, gar- uh, a dog who could uh, pr- practically warn them. But it does lead to what is it is my favorite kill because I love this little setup. She's she's gonna get the car. She's she's put the kid on Jamie Lee Curtis's character, again shirking her responsibility, and then she gets in the car and then she's well, why is there fog in the window? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and very it clever. speaks that yeah, and it speaks to the like you said the the old fable or the old like, urban legend of like oh a car's chasing like uh, it reminded me of that old urban legend of a, car, a car's chasing you down, and then they finally do and they're, they're no they're trying to warn you there's somebody in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> it it is undercut slightly because uh, he strangles her, and then she does this cross-eyed look <laughs> to signal that she's that she's finally passed. Yep, <laughs> it, it seems like out of a Naked Gun movie. Well, what I like about this movie a lot too is the use of sound design, because um, mm. that kill is almost completely silent. Because again, it's happening from within the cars, and no one can hear her scream. But then yeah. also, there's this other fact that this is happening on Halloween night. So you hear a lot of ambient, like kind of like screeching and squeals, but then kind of turns into laughter. So someone could be getting murdered somewhere off in the distance, and you wouldn't really know because it's kind of drowned out by all the rest of the Halloween frivolity. So I did appreciate mm. that as well. And then there's also that you know classic John Carpenter score. Yeah, maybe that's something we don't give him credit enough credit for. Is just <laughs> yeah. being a great. I mean, he could just be a composer on his own. He wouldn't even have to be an exceptional writer and director, which to, to my mind he isn't. But he is very good. Yeah, at no, at... that's. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to say that, unfortunately, given his career. It's like, is he more talented as a filmmaker or composer? Let's be honest, probably. I would composer. say, I would say composer. Yeah, yeah. even though and they are, they like are a little ambient. His... They're not exactly symphonic. Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> but also, it seems like that's more of his passion too. Like, he even came back for this year's remake, not the remake from ten years ago, but this year's remake <laughs> to do the score for that movie. And though, even though it was a different director, and I guess yeah. maybe he had a producing credit. Who knows? Uh, pro- probably they probably give him executive producer credit and residuals and all that. Yeah, but I, I would also probably argue he he probably has more passion for the music. It's also probably way easier than directing a movie. <laughs> I mean, don't you think he gets good performances out of everybody? Uh, th- to some extent. Well, uh, our next kill is 
I believe Annie, and she's she's obviously the most ridiculous one. She's a bimbo. Yeah. Um, there's one scene like I forget my chemistry book, my math book, and my English book, and my yeah. So she's she's not a she's not a bright spark. No. Um, she's she and her boyfriend Bob. You know Bob are the, are the most um, kind of cartoonish of the bunch, and it also leads to the most cartoonish kill. Bob is dispatched by. Um, being strung up by his neck and then stabbed with a butcher knife so hard that his feet dangle <laughs> off the ground. Well, also, like, he backs up and admires his work for, like, a split second. And yeah. it's also weird because you can see the knife in the body and you can see how much room is left on the knife and it's just like, there's no way. Again, plot holes, plot yes. holes galore for this movie. He, didn't, he shouldn't have known, known how to drive. Yeah. And where are the parents? <laughs> I mean, this is a good question. I never thought. Where are the parents? Do they ever get an explanation? Well, I think. Well, we do see two of them leave. I'm assuming the parents are off on their own, like formal party or something. That okay. I that I inferred. It's it's not explicitly said, but that's what I assumed. Okay, got it. Yeah. Now, so he's four. This is his fourth kill. He uh, Mike Myers is four kills in. He's killed the uh, auto repair man, a dog, poor Linda, and now Bob. Mm-hmm. Now, for his next murder, Annie's upstairs, and the dumb bimbo is waiting for Bob to come back with beers. And Michael Myers decides, I'm going to have some fun with this one. <laughs> exactly. So I am going to be dressed as a ghost, wear his glasses, so she thinks wear it's Bob's, me. Oh, yeah, wear Bob's very fetching glasses. <laughs> it was the 70s. It was a different time. <laughs> what do you mean, different time? Those, those have never gone out of style. <laughs> well, I'm going to call Lori. I want to know where Paul and Annie are. This is going nowhere. Finally. Hello? <laughs> Hello? All right, Annie. First I get your famous chewing, now I get your famous squealing. <laughs> Annie, are you all right? Are you fooling around again? I'll kill you if this is a joke. Annie! Yeah, and so this this kind of bothered me a little bit because, again, like, we don't know how much of Michael Myers is just pure instinct to kill and then mm-hmm. how much of it is premeditated. Like, because for a lot of the slow boil at the beginning, he's, like, stalking Jamie Lee Curtis and, you know, driving slowly. And obviously the girls notice him and they, like, make snarky comments. But then he just yeah. kind of, like, drives off. It's like, what? Like I know you're right. The intention is obviously to recreate the night of his famous, his first murder. But, like, why these people and why does he want to play games with them, you know? Where does that come in? Well, again, I'm I'm appreciating it on that kind of like urban legend ghost story oh, kind okay. of level. So I'm willing to it's uh, willing to suspend my disbelief in terms of like what exactly he wants and and why he's particularly toying with Annie at this at this point. And what Jamie Lee Curtis finds out, because again, her friends have practically disappeared. She leaves the kids, puts the kids to bed, goes next door, because this is all taking place on on a single street in two homes across across from one another. Mm-hmm. She goes over and she finds a scene. Like, not only has she, not only has then Michael Myers like set up the bodies to be um, dramatically revealed and scare <laughs> and scare the living daylights out of Jamie Lee Curtis, mm-hmm. but then also she he sees this like 
horrible scene where she's tied up uh, one of the corpses to the bed and put the, uh, I believe, Linda Myers headstone mm-hmm. right there. And so, like, yeah, you think you think he's accomplished his goal. He's recreated the murder of his sister as he did, you know, 19 years earlier. Mm-hmm. But instead... He's, he attacks Jamie Lee Curtis, and so like, what? Yeah, what is his goal here? I mean, if the goal is to basically scare people, and it's doing that job. <laughs> I mean, it's Halloween. He's just being festive. Yeah, and it leads to I think the other great trademark shot is it, it, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Sorry, Laurie Strode. We haven't even mentioned her name. <laughs> yes, our, our legendary uh, horror heroine. Mm-hmm. Goes to the phone and um, just in the shadow, and just with a small light, we see that we see his white face again, uh, surrounded in this dark, uh, shadowy doorway. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it also leads to one moment where I, where I won't suspend disbelief. He he attempts to stab her twice and misses, <laughs> <laughs> which is weird because he's clearly had so much experience with it. <laughs> exactly. Maybe maybe it's her virginal force field. Maybe it's the <laughs> fact that she's been responsible. There's something mythic going on there. <laughs> That's causing a myth, but miss. But she only gets he only gets her shirt sleeve, mm-hmm. and then later, I mean, this is this is where my my palms started to sweat. Is uh, she runs back next door? Michael Myers is, is slowly walking in tow, and the kids are like slowly getting out of bed. They're tired. <laughs> I'm like, damn it, kid, get to the door! She's screaming. <laughs> and you're also maybe again like this is building tension, or like from where you're looking at, this is either building tension or it's just like, all right, come on, get on with it. Uh, she stabs him. Well, that was, that one, yeah, that one I liked. I mean, yeah. Well, she first at first she stabs him with a sewing needle. He plays dead yep. for a while, but then comes back, and then she's able to stab. It. Like this is part of the final scene where they go across the street, and she's hidden in a closet, and. This well, the kids actually. finally, yeah, Dr. Loomis is finally not useless anymore. The kids alert him that Michael Myers is, is right there down the street. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, she's trapped in a closet and he's breaking through. You know, it's got one mm-hmm. of those shutter doors and he's like breaking through each one. The light is flickering on and off. And she yeah. manages to stab him with a coat hook in the eye and then also mm-hmm. stab him for realsies with a knife. Yeah. But also this does not take. So, <laughs> <laughs> And we could also look at the maybe a little symbolism with the coat hooks because... I mean, and this is too dreadful to think about, but when abortion was illegal, one of the one of the homemade implementations was a to to perform an abortion was a was a coat hanger. Um, so what what how, how would that tie in? Craig? <laughs> hey, well, exactly. Well, it's about female empowerment because <laughs> it could also be that she's in a closet and they needed something sharp. For exactly. Yeah. So we're not, I'm not going to read into it. <laughs> Again, this is John Carpenter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> His most powerful movies are usually capitalism is bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, not wrong. <laughs> yep, again, not wrong. Um... Get in there! Come on, Tommy. Now lock the door. Oh, my God. 
then we get the final, you know, the final, final kill. Supposedly, Dr. Loomis yeah. pulls out a six-shooter. Very Second Amendment pro, this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> so anti-abortion, but pro-Second Amendment. Huh. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Contrad- uh, this, this movie's full of contradictions. <laughs> and they set it up earlier, too. Is like Dr. Loomis, when he's in the house, is talking with the cop. Is like, oh, I don't have a license for it. It's like, ah, it's fine. This is yeah, not yeah. state. Who cares? <laughs> Again, it was late 70s. Everybody was on cocaine. They didn't care. <laughs> So he shoots Michael Myers six times, you know, so intensely that, you know, he starts clicking even though the, you know, gun is empty. Yeah. And he falls out the back window and onto the mm-hmm. ground. And we get, and Dr. Loomis, again, sucks at his job, looks down, <laughs> see Michael's Myers, goes back over to Lori. Does he comfort her? No. <laughs> he just kind of like <laughs> curiously stares at her. And she asks, is he finally gone or something like that? And she goes like, yes for now like and then turns around and he's gone so again michael myers is gone yes yeah okay dr loomis can work on his bedside manner this i will agree (laughs) however michael myers is yes like an apparition at this point so i if the if the idea is to create an effective scare like this movie does a 10 out of 10 job oh of course absolutely yeah yeah but again like all horror movies don't think about it too much or Mm. i think the other problem is once a horror movie does become a classic, people start reading too much into it, which I definitely feel like they've done with this movie. And read too much into it and try to mythologize it way too much because there have yeah. been way too many sequels <laughs> to this movie, and I don't know if any of them have been good. No. I, well, we haven't even seen a single one. So no, there you go. Yeah. We won't speak to the sequel wherein Paul Rudd, in one of his first roles, um, <laughs> sets up a series of rocks around, um, mythical rocks around... <laughs> Michael Myers, that causes him to freeze in place. <laughs> thus, thus allowing Paul Rudd's character to get the jump on him. Like, so, it, like Alien, like all these other classic kind of scary movies, very simple, thrilling premise at the center of it. However, like, what, where do you go for a sequel? You can't just do it again, so they have to expand the mythology, put, put Jason in space, or <laughs> Jaws in SeaWorld, or... <laughs> Make it high concept. We need a higher concept. Yeah. <laughs> So I will say I can see how as great and how great and effective this horror movie is and why it spawned such a such a long and storied history. <laughs> well, the other weird thing is that again, this was a this was a you know this obviously wasn't from the mind of John Carpenter. He was obviously paid mm-hmm. to do it, yeah. um, and the whole idea was it was meant to be an anthology kind of series. Like every year they would come out with a new Halloween movie with a completely different story. Well, that eventually yeah, that eventually became the concept because after Halloween two, they're like we're out of ideas of what we can do with Michael Myers the villain. <laughs> oh, okay, I thought that was the original intention. <laughs> no, no, no. And the, but, um, like Michael Myers was just such a popular character, they had to bring him back for a second run. Well, they did after Halloween three, which, as you said, they wanted to transform into an anthology series. Come out with a new one a new halloween movie every year mm-hmm. not involving michael myers it flopped it flopped terribly so <laughs> no, like okay no. let's bring back michael myers <laughs> okay and we've been getting him ever since <laughs> yes we'll never be rid of him nope again he'll just he'll just sit up and you know it doesn't matter how many sewing needles coat hangers um or butcher knives we throw into him <laughs> or bullets he'll just keep coming yeah back. that's true that's true but yeah we're not really uh slasher movie aficionados but i think yeah. we both thoroughly enjoyed it yeah, I I can heartily recommend it. Um, even as a not somebody who enjoys horror movies, so yeah, go see it. <laughs> we need some kind of like music chime to go with it. Go see it. <laughs> yeah. 
I was thinking we need something unique um, to tie to our recommendations. So maybe what what does this movie pair with? Um, mm. you, and, you and I love our craft beer. Um, we know a thing or two about wine. <laughs> For instance, this is a red. <laughs> <laughs> the color of this wine, I believe, is red. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that means something. Yes. <laughs> so I would compare it to a, a very good kind of um fall maybe even a pumpkin ale like you know like obviously you wouldn't bust it out in the middle of march but <laughs> once it comes around you can you can savor it you can enjoy it obviously obviously every craft brewer around there has ter- has terrible pumpkin beers <laughs> as their own version <laughs> terrible version of a pumpkin beer out there but maybe maybe you enjoy uh, sam adams oktoberfest or something i'm imagining a stout it, it pairs well with a nice oh, okay. stout all right again it's heavy like like the burden on, of killing on your soul <laughs> something like that <laughs> Yeah, Let's make or it the trauma. Yeah, or the trauma of a oh, of yes. a terrible deranged murderer coming after you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the other thing that bothers me is like they keep making these stupid Michael Myers movies, and then they com- inevitably mm-hmm. flop, and they have to bring Jamie Lee Curtis back. It's like <laughs> poor Sigourney Weaver. It's like I'm glad. Like same thing with Sigourney Weaver. I'm glad that these women over forty are still getting work, but it's like you shouldn't just trudge them out every time your lame <laughs> franchise isn't doing well. <laughs> well. I, again, John, would you rather they not be working? It's like kind of like a, the the one hit wonder conundrum. Like, would you would you like to be known for one hit or not at all? <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, even though I just wanted to make more Freaky I, Friday movies, more Freaky Friday. <laughs> yeah, obviously Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver have ascended to other great career heights, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sorry. Well, as long as as long as people keep seeing them, I mean, <laughs> Halloween the movie did exceptionally well at the box office this past oh, week. So great. It's like, we just got the Rob Zombie ones. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> Do better. Just that, that was a decade ago, John, which is like light years. <laughs> <laughs> They're making a new Spider-Man movie every week. <laughs> There's too many Spider-Men. <laughs> exactly. hardly recommended this one greg but maybe we should yeah. shine a spooky spotlight for this week spotlight 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 it's time robbie it's time Ooh. although I, d- I don't believe what we have is a uh, very spooky no 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 because again we're instead, not we're not horror movie aficionados <laughs> no <laughs> instead we're our spotlights are shining on the theater <laughs> Yes. For this week, I want to recommend a Stephen Sondheim production. Okay. Well, where? Where is it playing, John? What, 
Well, for right now, it's give, playing... It gives people some context, yeah. <laughs> it's playing in London, so I doubt anyone's going to get a chance to see it. <laughs> but it gave Then me how a... did you see it? You, unless you were in London recently. <laughs> no, I was not. Where were you <laughs> last, on last Thursday night? <laughs> on the night uh, uh, Hattie Mc, McFe... Mc, Mc, oh, God. <laughs> Hattie, Hattie McCormick was killed. <laughs> Outside Southwick. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, I don't have an alibi for that night, but... Okay. <laughs> because of that excuse, I can lead you to my proper spotlight recommendation, which is in 2011, they did a weekend-long production of this particular Stephen Sondheim play. It's called Company. It's never heard of it. Oh, well, it's not one of his more popular productions. I'll give it that. <laughs> what? I know, it's disappointing. But okay. I think it's one of his best. Uh, I think the reason why it's not particularly popular is because it's, instead of a single coherent story, it's a bit of... It's a bunch of small little vignettes kind mm. of played out of order, uh, all kind of around a central theme. Um, the theme, the story follows a man named Bobby. Um, he is, he's an eligible bachelor surrounded by all his married friends and all his married friends are kind of wondering, <laughs> is, is this autobiographical at all? <laughs> Steven, why don't you get, why don't you just find a nice girl and settle down? <laughs> Potentially, I think that made him uniquely. He didn't write the story. qualified, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it did make him uniquely qualified to write good songs for it. <laughs> Got it. Um, but Bobby, uh, in this version, in the two, in this 2011 version, is played by Neil Patrick Harris. Everyone loves okay. Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> A round of applause. <laughs> and so uh, all his friends are kind of like gording him. They're like, "Why? Why aren't you married yet? Why aren't you settling down?" Yeah. And each of these stories, each of these vignettes, kind of. Uh, illustrate the reason why that they all are like this is because they all have insecurities about their own relationships and the theme that it's exploring is marriage i don't know if it really comes to a kind of very specific thesis but the closest you can probably come to is that marriage won't make you happy but it makes you human and so it's it's a very interesting play and i think it's kind of dealing with a very heady idea Okay, thank you for that motivational poster. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, a little exactly. bit deeper into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, because the it, the play is very kind of back and forth about whether marriage makes people happy. Because again, you know, half his friends are you know clearly stuck in these kind of unhappy relationships. And mm -hmm. again, it's not encouraging Bobby to you know want to settle down at all. He's he, again, he's an eligible bachelor, a confirmed bachelor, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but. You know, like all the songs are kind of full of contradictions and kind of, there's this one song in particular where, you know, Bobby just flat out asks his friend, uh, Arthur, in this version played by the indelible Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Excellent. He he asks him, "You ever are you ever sorry you got married? And the song goes, you know, you're sorry, grateful, you're remorseful, happy. You know, it's like, it's again, these contradictory feelings. <laughs> it's very contradictions. interesting. It exactly. contains multitudes, yeah, like exactly. marriage itself. <laughs> and, you know, the, the refrain, the final line of the chorus is, you'll always be what you always were, which has nothing to do with, all to do with her. So, and the other reason why I wanted to bring it up is because this current production that's happening in London right now, they actually gender flipped Bobby. So now instead of a 35-year-old eligible bachelor, it's a 35-year-old bachelorette, which I thought was uh. a very interesting idea because, again, women are obviously more uh, under societal pressure to get married young so they can start pumping out babies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that made me kind of want to revisit it. And I thought, like, at first I thought, oh, it's got to be simple. You know, you just gender flip it. But again, a lot of it is very specific to men 
there's a song in particular where all his like guy friends are kind of like, have I got a girl for you, boy? <laughs> she knows right. the Karma Sutra and shit, you know? And again, it's like this whole idea of, you know, they're, they're projecting their insecurities about the relationship. You know, they're talking, it's like, oh, what I wouldn't give to be a bachelor again. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So again, great play. One of my favorite musicals. Check out the 2011 version, which I believe you can find on entirety for free on YouTube. I was once looking for like Sweet. clips, and I found the whole thing on YouTube. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, while it's still up there, I mean, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure with the likes of Neil Patrick Harris and mm-hmm. Stephen Colbert, like it was going to be like a short time, a one-time thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it only Especially played for at a the... weekend because it had so many stars. Greg, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah. It also had uh, Stephen Colbert and John Cryer and uh, uh, Christina Hendricks played April. <laughs> ah. Yeah. And also, the great Broadway legend, Patti Lapone. she plays Joanne, who uh, in the original 70s version, the original Broadway cast, Joanne was played by another Broadway legend, Elaine Stitch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sh- sure. Oh, you don't... <laughs> oh, the, oh, the thir- oh, the 30 Rocker. Oh, sorry, I'm not versed in Broadway. So. Oh, Greg, how dare you? You, you don't <laughs> so appreciate Elaine no, Stitch? Mean... How dare you? <laughs> these names mean very little to me. Um, I, I appreciate you. her as a, as a sometimes guest star on 30 Rock. Mm. <laughs> as Jack Donaghy's mother. You a cervic mother. You didn't appreciate her in her time, Greg. And how dare no, you? How dare you? Yes, I did. Person. I liked her character on that show. <laughs> well, again, companies where she honed that old crone persona. <laughs> okay, all right, fine, fine, fine. Yep. Here's to well, the ladies who lunch. Isn't she the best? <laughs> all this this podcast is entirely an excuse just for you <laughs> <laughs> to sing some old show tunes. <laughs> That's the weird thing about the play, too, is that every single song is practically a different genre, so it's not really right. coherent. <laughs> But highly recommend it. Go see it. Okay. Well, John, how about you, all you're doing is these old show tunes like Company. When, when was this play written? The 1850s? <laughs> <laughs> how about a new Tony Award winner, Daddy O? <laughs> Holy cow. Heavens yes. to Murgatroyd. My, uh, my monocles are popping out left and right. <laughs> exactly. Because yours truly was lucky enough to see one of the first performances of a Tony Award winner here in Los Angeles. Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the play I'm speaking of, of course, is, uh, I believe, no, not the most recent, a year prior, mm-hmm. uh, win- Tony winner for Best Musical, and that's Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, well, you're a little bit late to the party, Greg. Everyone's, I, already, uh, everyone's already passed by this one, okay? <laughs> well, wait until they license it more for high schools, because that's, oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's where this play has a home, because it's about high school. Oh, there you go. Um, I actually appreciate that it's also uh, an entirely original production. Um, I, I'm trying to learn more about Broadway, and I recently learned that these plays like Rent and Spring Awakening are all based on old plays from Europe, <laughs> like La Boheme. It's like things I'd barely ever heard of. <laughs> oh, La Boheme is a is a opera by uh, Puccini. Oh, okay, yeah. So, okay, and I had no idea. So again, yeah. a, a great, that, uh, in... points for originality, guys. <laughs> Do your next SpongeBob play, whatever. Broadway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you're you're canceled, sis. Other than Dear Evan Hansen, which is I I will say at the performance I was at, great. Thumbs up. Um, it centers around uh, a high school. I, I won't delve into the plot because uh, it does have uh, one key twist that kind of sets the motions forward. And if you want to keep that hidden, then I will. Okay. Um, but it starts. With, it centers around the the titular Evan Hansen, um, who's a gawky nerd and has zero friends. Who's starting a new, Who's intimidated starting his new school year. Mm-hmm. Um, he's broken his arm the year prior, and he uh, crosses paths with a, a burnout and a kind of a sour, depressed kid named Connor. Mm. 
So it's person he, being a wallflower. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what happen, What happens is is that Evan Hansen construes or concocts this scheme uh, where he becomes like Connor's best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, based on like him being the only person to sign his cast and and a few other things and like a classic sitcom setup. He keeps <laughs> burying himself deeper and deeper in lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> why? Why? Why are all these teen hijinks like? They immediately go to like, all right, just pile on lies. It's all lies. Teenage, <laughs> because you're, teen- you're a teenager, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> when yeah. you're a teenager, you don't really understand long-term consequences. So. <laughs> no, exactly. And also, like pressure builds, and and they're the story of between him and Connor. Um, which I, which I'm also glad. It's it's kind of a secret correspondence, and he has another like acquaintance who immediately assumes that they're lo- that they're secret lovers or something. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm getting a lot of hints of uh, love, Simon. <laughs> you know, secret exactly, correspondence, exactly, and blackmail. And they, they do, yeah, they do uh, comedically poke fun at that notion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there is that, it, it, although it's not really an LGBTQ themed play. So mm-hmm. there, there is that. I guess, I guess you could bring your kids, your impressionable kids. <laughs> Prepare them for adolescence, <laughs> and how yeah. horrible it'll be. <laughs> exactly, but the the, the uh, story that he concocts ultimately goes viral. So yeah, like more pressures mount as as these stories must. You know, these <laughs> they must go viral. Of course, <laughs> yeah. And so um, I I will commend the the reason that this not only is the high school setting like going to be really appealing to high school theater geeks, but also in the in the character of Evan Hansen himself, it allows you to allows you to really dive deep into your awkward people pleasing you know tendencies. Got it. <laughs> so um, the the night I went to was actually played by the understudy. I mean I I can't wait. Speak it's to it's the, the first names. week and it's already an understudy. Come on. <laughs> I th- listen, John. There's st- all the actors are still performing elsewhere. I mean they're either understudies on Broadway or traveling around. I mean, come on, give him a break. Please, you can't tell me Ben Platt is busy. Okay, come on. <laughs> he should show up to every performance ever. <laughs> he should be in company. He should, he should fill in for Neil Patrick Harris in company. <laughs> he would be great. <laughs> or, uh, whatever. <laughs> but that's great. Uh, a, f- a few downsides. Again, uh, well, also, I will s- speak to um, the staging. I, I mean, Broadway staging, I think, just gets better and better, thankfully. Mm. Um, because uh, this is based a, sh- a show based around social media. Uh, there are basically these kind of like translucent screens kind of dangling all around the stage. Mm-hmm. And so while they slide in like a couch set and a bedroom set, um, around them are the these like letters and emails and, you know, all the correspondences that you have on social media. So that's also very interesting. However, speaking to the other broad, the limits of, of theater, um, during dialogue, all the actors look like bobbleheads. <laughs> They're all like acting with their arms and shaking their heads. <laughs> Craig, you gotta, it's a, it's a play, okay? You gotta shoot it to the rafters. Uh, Exactly, yes. And they did play to us in the nosebleeds. That's where our tickets were. (laughs) They felt far more at home with the the music, uh, which uh, takes a while to get going. Um, I'd say in the middle of the first act is where it really really shines. Um, There's one, like, jaunty tune. And then finally, the, the big showstopper at the end of Act One. I mean, everybody. It, it's uh, called "You Will Be Found." That's the that's the show's also like a hashtag oh, okay. <laughs> and tagline, and so every everybody was leaving for intermission, drying their eyes and sniffing. You know, <laughs> of course, yeah, they know what they're doing. These Broadway folks, they know what they're doing. Exactly, yeah. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, there it loses its steam. It's got to contrive some conflict between Evan Hansen and his mother. Mm-hmm. It does come back. She has a great song about being basically a, a failure as a parent. Oh, okay. That also got the, the crowd, the admittedly older crowd, sniffling a bit, because um, I'm assuming they were parents as well. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And of course, they live in L.A., so, you know, all their children are probably <laughs> failures. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, they were failures as a parent because they just pass it off on the nanny oh, or the au pair or whatever. Yeah. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Well, sending them to school in Brentwood or God knows where. <laughs> okay, I haven't I haven't seen a Broadway production in a very long time. The last Broadway play I saw, or at least recent, was like 2014. I saw Kinky Boots, like on broad mm. on tour when it came here, which was a, a great performance, obviously. But you know, it's, but, yeah, it's so expensive. Is, it's so expensive. Exactly. This is why I'm reticent to recommend it because it's only going to be in Los Angeles for the next month. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, I will admit it was pretty pricey. I mean, compared to say a movie or just even a dinner out. I mean, I suppose. But it was. Yeah, they're, they're... It was a lot. It's a very good show. I will say that. But yeah, it's a lot. So maybe just look at when it is playing. Say at your local high school. Mm-hmm. Like you know, maybe give it a chance. Like even if you don't have a kid in the show, <laughs> <laughs> give it a chance. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what that's what I'm speaking for too. I mean, other downsides. I mean, this is this is a very basic kind of sitcom setup. Um, <laughs> Obviously, blown up. It does. It does tackle something very serious. Again, a twist. I'm not going to get into. But I mean, I already know the twist. But that's because spoilers yeah. mean nothing to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do wish maybe there were some more interesting directions for the story to go. Instead, it gets very predictable, mm. and so it does live and die on the quality of the songs, which are, I will admit, are great. Okay. As well as the performances. Again, I think he'll. I think. I think audiences all across the country will fall in love with Evan Hansen. Greg. Greg's next hot take: Tony Award-winning play, actually good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because it. It did remind me. I first heard about this because this coincides. I listen to NPR. Um, that's Ooh. right. That's right, folks. I have. I have a tote bag that I take to the grocery store. <laughs> Well, we live in California, so we have to. It's mandatory yeah. by law mm-hmm. in the People's Republic of California, comrade. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I listen to it, it coincides with my trips to the grocery store with my reusable with my reusable <laughs> bag from NPR. Mm-hmm. It coincides with uh, opening the curtain with a theater reviewer Anthony Burns. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, this is a theater critic who loves everything, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So of course he loved Dear Evan Hansen, but I could I could hear some hesitation in his voice because like, oh the the story's based around a lie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it just pointed to me how like guileless and earnest like theater people are. No, absolutely. And I went Yeah, and I wanted to say to like, Mr. Burns, have you ever tuned into something called television? <laughs> well here's the sitcoms have been basically doing this story for fifty years now. <laughs> Well, the other weird thing is the fact that for it to be such a success, to actually get to L.A., to actually go on tour, yeah, yeah it has to be good. It had to win all those Tonys. <laughs> if it wasn't successful, it wouldn't be on Broadway anymore. So therefore, they yeah. wouldn't put it on tour. <laughs> yeah. And also, I'll speak to this, it's an entirely original play, which I'm also stunned by. Again, mm-hmm. the other, like, who else, what else was competing for Best Musical at the Tony this year? The SpongeBob musical? <laughs> yeah. Like, Matilda won a bunch a few years ago. Like, it's, it's yeah. the same thing with movies. Like, it has to be a property that people recognize. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're not going to drop 70 plus dollars on something you don't even know, so. Yeah. I think the the fact that it did, it was good enough to get to Broadway and now on a national tour is something, I guess, worth celebrating. But yep. actually, wait till it's at your local, being performed at your local high school among well, real take, real teenagers and adolescents. That could take like two years, Greg. Uh, that's, 
Well, people are going to be revisiting this classic episode two years from now, I think. Uh, Okay, fine. (laughs) So, yes, come from away to see Dear Evan (laughs) (laughs) No, that's just what I do over Skype. Um, (laughs) Uh, That's a a, a, a no-hello joke that I stole. (laughs) Okay. Got to give proper credit. Yep. Well, I mean, we should have dressed as the uh, Gil Faison and uh, George jo- and George St. Geekland. Yeah. <laughs> jo- that For Halloween, that would have been great. That would have been so yeah. relevant this year. <laughs> exactly. People would have got it instantly Ugh. and said, "You guys are hilarious." Maybe I should have dressed up for this Halloween party I was throwing. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that was also my mistake. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go. But um, Greg, the party's just getting started. No, I have to go watch our beloved Boston Red Sox play the Dodgers. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for also scheduling that properly, John. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> because as because as we speak, the Red Sox have a three ga- three games to one series lead uh, over the Dodgers. But when this episode goes out, I mean, either the Dodgers can mount an incredible comeback, or the Red Sox can clinch it over the next three games. So now we got to record it two different ways. Well, Greg, if you truly believe in the Red Sox, you would have no doubt in your mind that they're going to clinch it tonight. I, 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 but you're good right, to know that you're so, fair weather fan. <laughs> I'm not a Fairweather fan. Here, I'll prove it. Like, right now, let's celebrate. Yes, Red Sox triumphed Woo! again. All right? no, nobody believed in them. They came out of nowhere. <laughs> the curse is reversed again. <laughs> nobody believed in them. Wookie Betts, you know, who was this guy? It's not like he was a highly touted prospect. It was a decade-long drought, season. but we fucking pulled it out. <laughs> yep. Well, no, it's only been five years, John. Five oh, years. Oh, really? Wait, they, yeah. they won in... Holy shit, I'm so bad at following sports. <laughs> <laughs> they won in 2013, yes, no, in the okay. direction of John Farrell. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Who got fired last year. Can. Get get his ass out of here. Okay, <laughs> wait. All right, now we got to record it the other way. Oh, yeah. Our beloved Red Sox. A oh. monumental collapse. They'll fucking break your hat. This fucking bomb. Absolutely. This is worse I've... than... Bur- the <laughs> Bre- <laughs> what's shit? What's his name? The guy who went between his legs? Oh, Billy, Billy Buckner. <laughs> this is worse than Billy Buckner. Oh, my God. <laughs> I blame the relief pitching. <laughs> they let the team down. <laughs> I think it was that pitching. first base. Let me coach. tell you, it's the bullpen. <laughs> there, yep, it's definitely the bullpen. <laughs> no, you know what it actually was? The bats. The bats went to sleep. What happened? <laughs> I don't know. They just didn't have the drive. They didn't have the heart. Because that's the great thing about baseball. It's all unquantifiable. <laughs> yep. Yep. Got to give it to the Dodgers. <laughs> yep. They probably have ugly girlfriends. No confidence. <laughs> <laughs> that was a reference to the classic 2011 film Moneyball. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. But yes, for all these great outdated references, and mm-hmm. for, you know, all your lovely baseball ephemera, you can follow us on social media to get the latest news and updates from the aspiring snobs. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And we have a personal email. If you want to get in touch with us personally, if there's something that you can't summarize into a tweet, mm-hmm. um, like a like a very long question or lengthy feedback on the movie Halloween, for instance, send us an email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Yes. We're taking comments and recommendations all the time, so please reach out. And once yes. you're done with that, mm-hmm. you can go to your podcast service of choice and give us five-star review. That way, you'll help others. Find this podcast and join the yeah. Aspiring snobs, snobs community. Yes, we'll build our audience. Um, we'll have a big enough audience that we can start making money off ad reads. Yes. And we can finally start affording to see these Broadway shows. <laughs> Don't you want us to go to Broadway shows for you? And we can report back to you and save you the trouble. Yeah, and tell you how bad they are. <laughs> oh, sorry, and tell you how they're the greatest things ever. <laughs> I mean, have you seen these 14-year-olds? Oh, woof. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't get into this business. So please, sophomore Debbie, Debbie Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I was so incensed, I drove an actress to tears. Was I expecting too much from fourth graders? Perhaps. <laughs> Man, we got references for days. References for days. So we also have a schedule of movies, John, which we- stretches up to, out for weeks ahead. So yeah, what do we course. have planned for next week? Next week, uh, we're approaching on the two-year anniversary of one certain election day, which has not left us and kept us <laughs> entrenched in horror for the past two years. So to celebrate, we're so watching... What are, you, what are you saying about Evan McMullen, John? <laughs> I was devastated he didn't win. Okay. Devastated. He was our, he was our one hope. <laughs> so next week, in honor of our great and triumphant leader, we're going to be watching The Great Dictator. Which is also on film struck again, so we have to get the most of our money out of it exactly. before it expires. Yeah. AT&T, where's my refund? <laughs> I paid for the Criterion Collection, damn it. Yes, assholes. I know. This, this, we're just going to speak to also the, the, the downsides of Monopoly. All right, these distribution, these communication companies should not be owning, should not be owning the distributors as well. This is bullshit. <laughs> we had a case in 1948 specifically against this. <laughs> well, I mean, on the one hand, I was kind of like a little scared at first that all these streaming services would basically become so niche that it's like, oh gosh, why do I have to have so many of them? Yeah. So it will again. I am optimistic that hopefully they will find a new home somewhere that'll be more beneficial, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We'll see. I don't hold out much hope. Not these days. Not no. these days. Yeah. So I'm going to go, John. This was, I've got to be honest, this was a terrible Halloween party. Oh, Awful. Oh, come on. Dreadful. Oh, come on. Just because, again, there's spaghetti in the punch bowl. I, just... I went all out. <laughs> you should have cooked the spaghetti first. You have hard spaghetti in the punch bowl. <laughs> I cut out plastic bats, or I've cut out bats out of construction paper. I, I went all out. I should have probably dressed in a costume, though. That probably would have been good. I, yeah. All right, listen. I'm taking. I'm taking this paper pumpkin. But if you could, just one more time, crank up that monster mash. Come on, DJ, oh, right. crank that shit up. Okay, this will this will cheer me up. All right. Well, everybody, happy belated Halloween. <laughs> and until next time, boys and ghouls. <laughs> Keep slay spiring. <laughs> Zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the mom. Come on.